Hello, and welcome to Health News with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. On today's episode, we continue our bone marrow conversation, this time with my guest, Dr. Young Mi Park, a Kaiser Permanente family physician. 15 years after putting her name on a bone marrow registry list, she was a perfect match for a young man who needed a life-saving transplant. It was an experience that exceeded her expectations, and she shares her donation story as a way to encourage everyone to join the registry and save a life. Please donate today and go to kp.org slash be the match to read more amazing donor stories. So you are a college student walking through the quad and someone has set a table up that catches your eye. So tell me about what happened. So for those of you who know Manhattan, it's on Broadway. And it's a busy street generally filled with Columbia students, Barnard students, and uh, professors and other people just passing by. And there's this long table set up um, in one corner. And so I pass by and I'm interested by the picture that's set up there. It's a picture of an Asian female and it says, can you save my life? And so okay, well, let's see, maybe, maybe I can, maybe. So I decided to just look into it and they said, well, this is the bone marrow, this person, uh, if they don't get a match, they may not be able to live, uh, but you have the ability to donate part of your body or part of your marrow to be able to save this person. So, oh God, now that you put me on a spot, what, I, what can I do? I, I have to say yes. So back then, not like now, we, they used to draw blood and can you imagine drawing blood in the middle of Broadway in Manhattan on a table? And so I had to put my arm out. Uh, they drew a vial of blood, put the labels on, and that was it. That was the last time, you know, I had heard from them until recently. Now, that was commitment. So you're walking by, they tug at your heart streams, and you, you're, you literally give the gift of blood in that moment. What a momentous decision. So... So let's talk about bone marrow donation. You mentioned that back in the day you had to get blood uh, or give blood in order to be evaluated. And what do you have to do now? How is it different now, do you know? Oh, it is so much easier. Life in the past was so much harder. Um, so now all you need to do is swab your cheeks. They have these little Q-tips, a little elongated Q-tip, and you just you know, put it into your four quadrants of the mouth, less than a minute, and you're all done. So easy peasy at that point um, for people who want to do that now. And and why was it that they actually showed a picture of an Asian woman on that poster? Why, why that person and why was that compelling? And how is that part of the bone marrow story about donation and matching? So first of all, it's compelling because I'm an Asian female. Uh, and about the same um, age group as that person. And um, it compelled me because I was told that the number of donor regist registrations for Asian Americans were quite low at that time. 
and that the percentages of being able to find a successful match is much lower in our group than other groups. And I said, well, that's not fair. Why is that? And how can we correct that? And for me, my first step was be part of that process of solving that and, you know, be part of that registry just to be available. And in fact, I think that there is such a need for donors through the Asian community that they've actually even set up their own website, the Asian American Donor Program, in order to raise awareness and to to really compel people to engage around this, to have them uh, become donors. So you go on with your life, and I imagine probably don't even think much about this until... 2011. So that's over a decade of um, since I did that. Um, by that, by now I'm in California uh, with two boys, two little cute boys, and I'm working uh, at this, uh, you know, at a really at, at working as a family medicine doctor. And I get a phone call from my brother saying, hey, somebody's looking for you. They want to know whether I can forward your phone number. I said, well, first of all, who is it? <laughs> if it's an ex-boyfriend, no. But if it isn't, um, yeah, fine. So they, he said it's the uh, Blamero uh, Be the Match program. So I said, okay, well, I think I remember doing that. Let me see what we can help you with, well, when, what I can help them with. So I decided to um, call them and they told me that I had been a match to a boy who's 15 years old with mild plastic syndrome. And so I said, okay, what does that mean? Um, they said, well, we would have to do preliminary testing of your blood again just to make sure that things are matching and see how, how well matched you are. And based on that, we can make a determination of where you'll be, whether you'll be a good candidate to donate or not. So you obviously matched up again. You had to donate some more blood, I imagine. And then what was the process like after they determined that you were healthy enough, you were a really good match? What happens next in this process? Okay, so obviously, uh, once you commit, you have to follow through. Um, the reason you have to follow through is because um, this person wh whose blood marrow is completely wiped out, waiting for your marrow, if you at any point decide not to go through it, they're pretty much not able to live through that. So um, you had to commit uh, seriously. And so the commitment process includes, um, besides the blood test, getting some um, Neupogen shot. It's a, it's a medicine that will help increase the uh, production of your blood cells in your marrow. And so we, we need, I needed to do that for about five days. And that we did a, I did a self-injection uh, and could and, you do a self-injection because you're a doctor or because anybody can do this? And I believe anybody can do that. It's fairly easy. Uh, but I was working in the clinic, so the nurses did teach me how to do it the first one. Nice. And so the next four, I was able to do it on my own at home. Okay. So five days of giving yourself a shot and mm -hmm. side effects from the shot. How are you feeling during that? So I was feeling like one of my patients was coming with whole body aches, um, talking about 80-year-old women, you know, who are coming in saying they have body ache everywhere. I did feel like I was in my eighth decade. 
uh, I felt like I couldn't really move my arms and legs like I used to. Just getting out of the bed was painful. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't my normal self, but not to the extent where I thought it was it was enough for me to stop the process. And I imagine, again, that commitment process. I'm, I'm a little bit um, amazed and curious about what that was like for you from what went through your head as... Do they make you sign something? Do they make you watch a video? I mean, this really is important, right? You have to commit, and yet you're committing to something that you're not even sure what it is going to feel like. Is this going to affect how you go to work every day? Um, so, so what was that like for you as a donor to think about the commitment process? Sure. There were so many opportunities that were given to me to get out of my commitment meaning that they had to be 100% certain that I had to, I was going to go through this. They, we had an interview by phone that took about an hour, uh, just asking questions, answering questions, and providing all the information, that uh, the details for what was going to happen. I also watched the video that was sent to me uh, just to ensure that all of my questions were answered. And they followed up fairly regularly until I was completely comfortable. So they, did your husband or your sons have any concerns about you doing this? No. If they, I, I, yes, I'm sorry. Maybe I shouldn't say no. <laughs> um, so they had as many questions as I did. Um, but they knew it in, in the end that it was my choice, that I wanted to uh, provide an opportunity for somebody to be able to live who happens to be a boy who's 15. My kids were going to be at that age very soon. Mm-hmm. And so it just felt like I was just extending an opportunity to improve somebody's son's life. Like, like it would if my sons needed a bone marrow uh, transplant. What, where would I, how would I put myself into that position? And what would I hope for? That just gave me goosebumps. You really thought about that mother that wanted her son to live through this. That was amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So you're achy as can be, and that is a great sign, right? Because that means that your bone marrow is working overtime. You're aching because it is so active. You are making all of the cells that the recipient is going to need, but now we have to get the cells from you to the recipient. So what was the next step for you? So the next step was it, they had to coordinate everything perfectly, right? They needed to make sure that I was going to go to a facility where they would have everything prepared. He would be in a facility wherever he was going to be, and he had to be, he had to have his bone marrow depleted. And so this whole process was very timely. Uh, we were able to do this around in the July, uh, Independence Day weekend. I took a few days. I drove down to San Diego to Sharp. Um, I believe it was Sharp, uh, where I was. Um, they were all, they were ready for me, and um, it required for me to go in, get uh, additional blood work very quickly, and um, I was able to get on the bed to be able to start the process. The process involved me being hooked up. Actually, so you know all about pick lines, but. Pick lines are um, little slits that you put onto the arm to have access to um, to your blood vessels. 
for us to be able to do procedures or to put medicines into. But uh, in my case, this is the first time I've ever had them done to myself. So thank goodness they put a little bit of lidocaine, slid a little bit of a um, slid a little bit of my skin on both arms, and they inserted the pick line through those two areas. So I was lying in bed with both of my arms spread to be able to um, to be connected to this machine. The machine, I mean, I think that's I, to me, I equated equivalented to like a hemodialysis machine. It looked like that. It had blood pumping through. It had tubes where the blood was going through and was coming out one way and going in the other way. So I was on that machine for about, um, I think I was helping about three or four hours. And so blood goes out one pick line, right? And it's Mm -hmm. got all of your blood cell components. It goes into the machine. It gets processed and they take out those those marrow cells and then... And then what gets returned back in the other pick line is everything but those marrow cells. So you get back all of your plasma, your red blood cells, um, your antibodies, everything comes back to you except that the cells that they need. Is that right? That's absolutely right. So that's another thing a lot of patients have concerns about when they do this. It's what are they taking out of me and am I going to be back to my normal cells? And the answer is yes, they are taking parts of your parts of the body that that uh, that is able to be reproduced later, uh, it and they give everything back to you. So now, that does mm-hmm. go ahead. That doesn't mean that you're not going to feel anything um, <laughs> right. through the process. I felt nauseous. They gave some benzodiazepines to decrease that. Um, so I think I slept part of the time. Uh, my husband was with me the whole time, and. Um, you know, after the process, um, I, on my ride back to uh, to my home, which was about two hour ride, I had stopped to vomit once. I felt ex- extremely tired. Yeah. But you know, that's like having a bad flu. You get it, and you'll get over it. Yeah, you get over it. What does the mirror look like? So it goes into the machine, it gets taken out, it gets put into its own plastic bag. I'm sure. What does it look like yeah. when it's taken out of your body? Uh, well, it's yellowish, whitish. Um, it's definitely not the color of blood, so the hemoglobin part's not in there. That makes it red. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating as a physician to seeing that part being uh, centrifuged out to look like that. Yeah, I bet it was, actually, to see your own marrow sitting in yeah. front of you, right? I mean, that's uh-huh, just uh-huh. conceptually a weird thing. Um, and then because I'm a physician and you're a physician, you talked about some uh, pre-procedure labs. Um, did you find out what your white count was um, after the Nupagen for five days by any chance? Um, I believe it was in the 21s. Okay. And so normal's yeah, less than 10. Pounds. And so uh, so kind of doubled um, your volume of your white blood cells there. So mm-hmm. that's just pretty fascinating. So the donation happens. And yep. did you... So you, you were notified that this was a 15-year-old boy who um, probably, if everything went well, was going to get your, your, your marrow infused. Did you find out if that happened and if it was successful? So they have a very strict guidelines on sharing medical information with the donors and the recipients for good reasons. We hope that all of the transplants are successful, but sometimes they may or may not be. And so they generally don't, 
it appears to me they don't want to have any um, emotional connection to anybody at that early stage. I think that's to protect both the donor and the recipient. Um, so the only information that I receive is uh, within a week, they'll tell me, oh, uh, patient's responding well. And within a month, they'll tell me, okay, the patient is out of the hospital. And then at six months, they tell me a little bit of, uh, you know, update. And at one year period, that's when we get an opportunity to follow up. Awesome. I'm going to hold you there, though, because I want people to understand. So how is it? that your marrow cells, they now go into kind of a pick line into the recipient. How do they find their way to the marrow to start doing their thing in the recipient? That just seems weird. So I'm not an oncologist or hematologist, so I'm going to stick in the simplest form. You feel free to add that <laughs> if you need to, uh, given your medical background as well. Uh, but my understanding is that um, you know, the bone is not uh, a completely dense um, organ, unless we want to call it organ, and it has whole, it has a hollow area in there where the blood cells are made. That's where they replicate, that's where they're produced, and then they are released to the body from that system. And so when there are blood cells that are going into his body, my blood cells that are going into his body, it finds its way to the bone marrow. And once it finds it finds in the, the bone, bone marrow area, it does what it generally does: replicate it, does you know grow what it, the different genes, uh, genetic lines, and then release it to the blood. It's kind of, it's it's so interesting to imagine. It's fascinating, and now it happens all the time. And it's so standard, they could just, even these people who've never met in different cities can, you know, have this blood transported and, and totally repopulate his bone marrow, his red cells, his white cells, his platelets, um, the antibody producing cells, um, just a fascinating concept. So there's the science. And then there's, there's the heart, right? Which is, it's now a year and they say, you know what, enough time has gone by, he's doing well, would you guys like to, would you like to meet? So what happened? So they provide each, well, first of all, they have to get consent from both parties, obviously. And if both parties agree that they want to be able to communicate with each other, they provide I think back in the old days, letter addresses, right? But now they were providing email addresses. Uh, to 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 us, and so once I got the email address, I was just extremely excited to just see how he was doing and what it was, what his path was like for him, and um, just see what kind of person he was, and and just hear him, yeah. you know, not hear him, but read him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can imagine again as a mom with with boys. Um, how meaningful that was to understand that you really did prolong someone's life, literally give them life and and to identify from that standpoint. And then to also just be able to pivot as far as who he is as a young man um, who went through this life altering experience as well. Did you ever get to meet him? Yes. Yes, we did. Um and 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 what you mentioned about you know having impact on on the recipient, but also those people around him, 
absolutely uh, uh, the meeting kind of solidified that that idea, right? And, so, and so I want to I want to point out some some gaps and some pauses oh. in the whole story. So going from being a being identified as yes, I'll be a donor to becoming one was that decade that went by. There were months right. that went by as far as even the donation process. Now, now there's a gap in terms of you get to actually reach out to each other. And then I think there was a gap between meeting virtually and meeting in person. And there was something that was quite life altering for you in that, that gap as well. Would you mind sharing that perspective with us? Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Well, um, Yes, we, you know, besides being private, but um, I think sharing this is important for me because it helps me drive the work that I do. Um, so I was diagnosed with breast cancer uh, at the age of 46. Um, and at that time, I had been, you know, getting mammograms, but this was um, still found in my breast. And had to start treatment. Um, I received the surgery for the cancer as well as radiation therapy, and I was put on hormonal therapy and am still put on that, um, still taking that daily. Um, so it was definitely, that was an all life-altering event for me in lots of many ways. I was an assistant chief of my department. I was running urgent care um, I was very, very busy. I didn't have time to get sick. I didn't have time to do think about this. I had two young kids and a busy husband in the music field. And um, it just was not a good time. But then again, when is cancer ever a good time? Um, so anyways, uh, what that gave me was just the time to process. During my treatment, I had taken off some time. Uh, to be able to recover, and during that time, it just made me reevaluate uh, what life is and how differently or similarly I want to live. And in that process, it made me um, definitely want me to pursue things that I am passionate about, no longer having to do things that may sound interesting but not passionate about. And so in the process, I, you know, I put in my resignation for my position, which I am totally happy about still. Um, but also, I wanted to concentrate concentrate on doing things that made me happy and that would prolong my life mentally and physically. What are those things? So um, one of the things is, you know, during the process, um, the bone marrow to me was a life change, life changing experience as well. Um, I mean, I'll tell you a little bit about the meeting, meeting later. So, uh, some of the things I am passionate about is a bone marrow drive, um, because I know what an impact that can have on the greater community. I'm not just saving my child's life or my uncle or my my niece's life. I'm extending that to a person who shares my genetic gene line somehow, right? So if you think about all of us being connected, interconnected as humans, we're all related in some way. Even though Kevin was Chinese and I'm Korean, we, our gene lines must have met 
and merged at some point. And so, you know, having that connection to uh, to everybody in the world just makes you want to do the right thing for everybody. So, um, so that though, very theoretical connection was a very literal connection for you and Kevin. Yes, yes. Um, so, so for me, just keeping that in mind, things that I do, volunteer work I do, um, going to missions in other countries, it just connects me to, to my ancestors, I think. Yeah. So one of the things that evidently became a priority was actually meeting the recipient in person. Yeah. So, so, you know, after my treatment, uh, I decided that I wanted to take a trip. Um, I, I took a trip to San Francisco to meet him. That's when I, you know, I had known that he was in San Francisco for a while. It's not far. We're in the same state, but it's still eight hours drive. Yep. Um, so this time we said, well, when we're going there, we're definitely going to give Kevin a call and see whether we can meet up with him. And we did this on New Year's Day. Um, so I, we arranged for everything to, we arranged for us to meet together. Uh, this was on New Year's Day, actually, and, and we were meeting in Chinatown. Uh, he's Chinese, and apparently it's a big tradition uh, for their family to eat a delicious dim sum Chinese Chinese food uh, every New Year's Day. And and, so, and you us, had right? a great guide, right? It's like they're, they're Chinese, they know Chinatown, yes, they have this tradition. Yes. So you're going to get a great meal out of this. <laughs> Absolutely, and we sure did. It was um, a very packed um, restaurant, obviously, as an special occasion. But not only that, we had a big group. Not it wasn't just Kevin. Uh, we had three generations of Kevin's family. His grandmother was there. His father was there. His brother was there. His mother was there. Mm. On my side, I had my two boys and my husband. So we had a big table. And thank goodness for the lazy season, uh, <laughs> right? That allows us to eat everything in a timely manner uh, and uh, make sure nobody else goes hungry, right? But it was so adorable because his mother sat right next to me and she kept putting food on my plate. You know? <laughs> she was mothering uh, you. <laughs> she was mothering me. Yeah, uh, it was the sweetest thing. Well, you but got to you got to mother her son. I'm sure there was some reciprocity mm-hmm. in that that action. Yes, yes. Um, you know, she of uh, the the father didn't speak any English. The grandmother didn't speak any English. Mm. So this whole time we're talking to each other. You know, I'm just wondering whether they know what we're talking about or whether there's any aspect of understanding or, uh, you know, I just thought maybe they'd be bored, right? <laughs> there was just a lot of English going around. So, um, but having said that, there was all, they were all smiling all the time, which is, you know, pretty much how, how I think I was able to read their language, their body language, that they were happy to be there with their family intact. Uh, and be there with somebody who helped provide that intactness by providing a life-saving procedure to Kevin. And, and to, to experience another New Year's Day together as a family. And, and I'm just imagining 
their joy, their smiles, and that now you're part of their family. Yeah. Uh, you know, you literally live on in Kevin. Um, yeah. But you, I'm, I'm sure through this action that you never could have anticipated how impactful it would be, you have another family now. Yes, we do. And so, you know, as we were departing after a delicious and amazing lunch, um, his grandmother just grabbed me. Big hug. And just hugged me. Yeah. She knew what that meant. You knew what that meant. You're both mothers. She's a grandmother. She knew. She was a grandmother. She had a grandkid who, who was still with her. Um, yeah. she, she just said, thank you. Thank you. I understood it in Chinese. She said, she, 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 she couldn't stop saying that. And so, of course, um, even without the language part, we were able to connect in a, a more emotional aspect of that. Yeah. A mother knows. And and talking about kind of your retreat from the world when you went through your own cancer treatment and what's important in life, wow, there's nothing more important than what you were connecting with right then and there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, I view it as a gift. Um, I don't view it as me giving something to somebody. I look at it as uh, that act has provided me with a purpose in life, a, a, a reason to do the things I'm doing, to encourage patients and uh, to encourage donors to really sign up for this because the life impact literally is not just for the patient. It's also for the donor. And we need that more than ever, it feels like right now, is that connection to each other, both metaphorical and literal. Um, so I'm, I'm so glad um, that you would share your story with us today. Thank you. Absolutely. Is there anything that you'd like to add that you wish I had asked, but I haven't? Um, well, um, I'd like to go a little bit more about my passions, about my bone marrow drive that I, I participate um, regularly. So let me ask that. Um, mm -hmm. So you mentioned your passions and you have gone through the bone marrow donation process. Does this continue to be a passion in your life? Yes, it, it is still a passion. Uh, it continues to be because um, the more I do of it, the more lives I see impacted by my work. Um, what I do uh, and trying to do as well is continue to grow the program within Kaiser where I work. And we, I participate in the bone, uh, in the new employee orientation, NEOs, which every medical center has. That includes all the people from the EBS to uh, service reps to RNs and physicians, not physicians, but RNs. And so they, they have an opportunity to meet every two weeks to orient these new employees. And I have an opportunity to be there to um, share with them that we have a program that allows us to give back to our community, but also to help them should they need the help or should they or their family members need the help of a bone marrow drive in the future. And are you so, conveniently yeah. standing by with swabs when you do this orientation? 
<laughs> yes, we did before I love the pandemic it. hit. Yes, we are. Chris and I. Chris is from A3M. He's my counterpart, and uh, we stand at the back of the uh, room. Uh, we do it right before lunch, so that they have the opportunity to go towards the lunch, but in the process has to. You know, they have to pass by our table, right? And so we try to get that opportunity to answer any questions, any concerns. And um, people are, you know, it's exciting for them to be at a new orientation to start a new job. But for them to be involved in something that could be impactful, not not necessarily associated with their job, is, has been very positive. Sometimes people will come up to me and say, you know, I've always wanted to do this. I've always wanted to, but I haven't had the chance. Thank you for giving me the chance to do that today. Or they will say, you know, my cousin had a drive a long time ago, and I missed that opportunity because I was living abroad. I want to take that chance now and provide something for somebody else. Please, you know, take my swab, and I hope I match. And I also always tell them, I hope you match. Because that's like winning winning the lottery. It really is. As far as how full your heart becomes afterwards, it sounds like. So what are people doing now? A lot of people aren't going into work. Can they still be donors? Can they still be swabbed? That's a very quick question. So uh, when we were doing the new employee orientation in my medical center, I had control over that. Now it has become virtual and regional. So Southern California runs all the NEOs virtually with hundreds of people. So they're very limited in terms of what agendas get on the topic, uh, on the agenda. So um, we had not been able to continue that. Uh, we are hoping that we will be able to continue that once it comes back to the local areas. But not only that, our goal is to continuously grow it to other due to the other 12 medical centers within Southern California. And my understanding is um, you can actually go to Be The Match, and is, yes. right? And that, and that you can fill out the form there. They prefer people, I think, between ages of 18 and 44. I'm sure the bone marrow is just more active in that age group. Um, and if you can't contribute bone marrow, they will take your money. Um, but they will also mail you a kit and you can, this is so easy. You can even swab your own cheek to send it back. This is how easy it is for everybody listening. If you have any inclination to do this. Um, so I would encourage everyone to do that because it's, it's so easy to get into the registry, um, through that, that website. Absolutely. Thank you for that amazing summary of how it's done. And yes, um, you know, I'm used to doing everything in person as a drive, but absolutely uh, with the virtual world, we have that available and it will be sent to you. And I will guarantee you, if you are chosen as a donor, it will make a difference in your life in the way you view life as well. I encourage you to do that. It's also a really heartwarming gift to a, to a person that hopefully we'll be able to connect with later. We see patients, we prescribe treatments. Sometimes I think that maybe I have saved a life, um, but it's hard to know. Um, but anybody can save a life through through donors. Yes, and the impact that has on, on that individual. So that's really interesting. So one of the organizations I work with, which is A3M, uh, 
uh, here in Southern California. It's um, Asian Mara Drive organization, and they have a gala every year. And the biggest part and the best part of the whole gala is when a recipient and a donor comes to me for the first time. Mm. And that is just moving, uh, extremely powerful. Um, you can imagine how many, how many tears there are in the room when this happens, but it's just the most amazing t- part of the whole thing. Because people, you know, you can speak about it, but you, if you look at their faces and the emotions that they, they are able to show through the process, it just tells you how important and how amazing this is. The gift that keeps giving for you as you continue your involvement in this work. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It is something that has definitely filled me. It is. Um, it has only been a positive thing for me. And I, cont- I expect to continue to do this as long as I can. Young me, you have such a heart. And I see this big open-heartedness through your entire story from the beginning of just a face that called out to you to literally answering the call that you got a decade later um, and then connecting with people who had been strangers and now became family and really affirming really all of our connection to each other as we walk the earth together, you really have such an amazing story to tell and to share. Thank you so much for doing that today. And these ripples that you have created out into the world through everything that you've done, but especially through bone marrow donation, I hope are going to go out even further as people hear your story and really respond to the call for action, which is become a bone marrow donor. Thank you so much for sharing your heart with us today. Deb, thank you so much for taking the time to hear us and to invite me to do this important work. And I hope it touches somebody's life because the work has touched me. I've already been touched, so I know it's going to. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks to my guest for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health View podcast with me, Deb Friesen. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.